Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Spark, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks are flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love and passion into your life. So today, I'm so excited to have as my guest, Dr. Tanjanika Kwaskud. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, we call her Dr. Tanji. It's a cl- uh, she's a clinical sexologist, a sexual health educator, and a surrogate partner therapy facilitator. She's the founder and principal of Texas Sexual Health in North Texas. She's a board, she is board certified by the American College of Sexologists, is a member of the World Association on Sexual Health and an ambassador of the American Sexual Health Association. Her media presence and sexual health contributions to publications span all over the world. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tanji. Thank you so much, Sumati, and I am very, very excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation and for the opportunity to share space with you. Yeah, so glad to have you. So um, you're originally from Puerto Rico, and you've got quite the uh, academic background. Um, so I'm really interested to learn, you know, how does a nice Puerto Rican girl like you become a a, a, a sexologist and a sex surrogate? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yeah, your story. Yes. Right. Well, that is a very interesting story. And, yes, a nice Puerto Rican Hispanic girl who ended up in the field of sex. Um, well, I before was working in the field of higher education. Um, however, since very early on, uh, I had a first off, I had a precocious development. So I went into puberty really, really early at age five, mm-hmm. and so oh. I think I matured faster than other kids um, because obviously my body not only was maturing, but also my mind and my hormones and everything else. So as for as long as I can remember, I have lived in this body that I hold now. Um, and I uh-huh. think that's probably set me in motion to uh, become more interested in the human body and what happens um, as we age, as we change, and definitely mating and relationships. I was very interested in reproductive biology and uh, started reading and learning myself through books because having come or been raised in the Hispanic culture in a very traditional household with grandparents, not even parents, around, uh, the, the messages around sex were very sheltered, uh, almost non-existent unless it was just Uh, table talk or just the social interactions that you would have with your peers. So not a whole lot of sex education. Uh, So I was very, very interested in the subject and uh, I I followed my trajectory in business administration and marketing, um, went into higher education. However, I always had this 
feeling inside of me that I really loved sexology but didn't know that there was such a field and didn't know how to get there. Um, So fast forward that, and I went to do my first doctorate degree. I do have two. And, And I said at the time, I really want to do my doctorate degree in sexology. However, I was in higher education and on a different track, and I, I just followed the track and went into a doctoral program for business administration and international business. And um, then I, I got married, I got divorced, and I decided if I am going to do this, I am going to do this now. I really want to go into the field of sexology. I started uh, writing for magazines and publications about sexual health. People started asking me questions, and I found out that I knew a lot, but I didn't know how to treat people. I didn't know how Mm -hmm. to contribute to people's sexual well-being in a meaningful way, uh, at least through treatment. So I was as good as Google at the time. I had a lot of information, but not (laughs) training to really impact people therapeutically. So I decided to right. go back and go to San Francisco, go back to school, do another doctorate degree, which sounded crazy at the time and still does, but I have never been happier. That's how I ended up as a clinical sexologist. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. So, yeah, that's really interesting that you reached puberty at five years old. That, I've never heard of that before. What was? Did, I mean, would I be prying if I asked if you had a, like a medical condition or does that just happen for some people? Um, no, you are not prying. Actually, that story you can find it on the internet. Um, as, as some of the uh, one of the networks interviewed me for that um, a few years ago. So it just happened um, back then in Puerto Rico. Apparently, there was a cohort of uh, girls who were reaching puberty really, really early. I didn't know about anybody else necessarily who reached puberty as early as I did. Um, Mm -hmm. However, uh, there was a lot of questions around it. In the beginning, they thought that I probably had cancer or something ominous that was happening Mm -hmm. to my body, and that's why I was growing so fast and my boobs were growing Mm -hmm. and everything was just sprouting. Um, but it just, it was determined that I had just reached puberty for whatever reason. I was never given a definite answer as to what caused it, but Mm -hmm. I think it was just okay. Um, the only negative thing that happened or that resulted out of that was that I grew very fast to uh, five feet, uh, one inch and I stayed there. (laughs) I never grew anymore. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I reached puberty and my height very early on, and then everybody just passed wow. me by, and and I'm I'm a I'm a short girl. <laughs> uh huh. Well, you know, it makes me think about like when I was in about sixth grade, and there was like one girl in my class that was, you know, more developed than the other girls, and I had both. You know, she got hit on and teased by the boys all the time and she was always hiding her breasts and you know I um, had this mixture of both um, you know uh, empathy for her for getting teased like that and also envy you know like a mixture of both so 
I, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, since you developed so early, if you felt like you got more attention than you were emotionally able to handle, and if so, how did you come out of that to be so grounded around sexuality to where you teach other people not to feel shame? Well, I, um, you know, again, it happened so early that I was mm-hmm. not in full awareness of what was going on. So, mm-hmm. and also in my house, there was only one mirror. So I was mm. not necessarily focused on my body. I was not fully aware of what was going on. And mm-hmm. I remember the commentary around me and the attention that I got from everybody, from the kids mm-hmm. in my class, from my teachers, from my neighbors, my family, complete strangers um, mm-hmm. who would comment on my body. And obviously when you have boobs at age five, you know, all the kids are going to be very interested in, like, why do you have boobs? And right. uh, I had to wear a bra in kindergarten, you know. So that's, wow. That's wow. Just, uh, very unusual, I would say. However, I think that because it happened so early, when I came into awareness about my body, I was already in this body. So mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, in a way, what I tell people is I never went through puberty because I was born, and then a few years later, I, I reached puberty. Um, so right. when everybody else was going through it, I was already in it. I was already in that uh-huh. body, all fully developed and voluptuous and curvy and all that. So uh, I owned it. I didn't feel awkward. Um, I knew that I was drawing a lot of attention, not intentionally, but it, mm-hmm. it, that's what I grew up with. So for me, that was the norm. Yeah, well, I just love that you, you know, you owned it and you're a dancer. I read about you that you're also a dancer. Like, it sounds like you at least had some degree of protection from your family where you maybe got a lot of attention, but you still were able to develop as a, you know, a person with a healthy, healthy boundaries and um, a healthy attitude. Yes, well, it was a very strict upbringing, don't get me wrong. And um, back then... The whole purpose of childhood or your or the parenting styles around you was to protect your virginity. Really, that, that's what it was. So mm-hmm. in a way, I was not allowed to do a lot of things um, in retrospect just because I owned this body. However, again, because I, I was not aware of what was going on, I did not know that my grandparents who raised me were so protective of me because they were trying to protect me from a potential, you know, rape or somebody taking advantage of me and God forbid Mm -hmm. that I would uh, lose my virginity, although I don't like to use that term um, myself, but that's what they thought at the time. Um, You know, they wanted to preserve my purity and all that attention that I got, really what it did in my family was that they kept me (laughs) behind closed doors as much as possible. However, I, I was born a free spirit, so mm-hmm. I challenged the norms, and, and uh, I was not necessarily a rebellious kid because I didn't do anything that would be considered wrong. Um, I was always kind of coloring in, within the lines. However, I had to really assert myself and even fight for the little bit of space that I needed to grow and to 
just be a normal child because I was so overprotected. However, I was very involved in school. I was very smart um, academically. So I had a lot of support and a lot of championing from the community around me, despite the fact that I was a little, you know, a little woman. In a, chronologically, I was still a little girl, but I was, I had a womanly body. Um, so it was, mm-hmm. it was an interesting, it was an interesting time to grow up, I would say. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Thank you for sharing that. And then how did you become a surrogate partner? And I'd like to hear about how, being a surrogate partner affects your personal romantic and sexual relationships? Um, you know, when I was beginning my journey in, this, in the field of sexology, when I was doing all the research and all the writing, which was a lot of fun, was extremely exciting. I was writing for four magazines, and, um, and that was my life. I was just writing about sexual health and... Uh, I felt very, very lucky that I got to write and get paid to write in, this, in these publications about the topic that I was so passionate about. Um, and I started reading all the books and all the material that I could possibly get my hands on about this field and sexualities and, and anatomy and bodies and dysfunctions and you name it. I was devouring all the content that I could possibly get my hands on. And I found this book about a male surrogate, actually. Uh, and when I read it, I just, I just fell in love with it. And I had already, I think, enrolled in my doctorate program for uh, clinical sexology. But when I read it, I said, this is something I want to do. And I think mm. in some way, through past experiences, I had done that. I had uh, kind of taken the hand of somebody uh, to rebuild their confidence or to accompany them in an intimacy journey when they were mm-hmm. the most vulnerable. And so, and for me, that was always very important. And I held that very dearly. And I, I felt a great sense of honor when I was able to share those experiences with different folks. And when I read that book, I was enlightened. I said, that is, that is something that I definitely want to do. And also I read mm. another book that's called Women of the Light. And it, it is about, it is a beautiful book about different women. And, and in different situations, they have been in that space with somebody kind of holding their hand as that person makes their erotic and intimacy journey. So I, I thought I want to I want to do that. I want to be able to work with people in that way and touch them so intimately and go to that space where nobody gets to go. Little did I know that my experiences were going to be so absolutely beautiful and and so transformative. And so I've gotten to work with um, individuals who have been just an incredible journeys themselves. And I consider myself to just be a, you know, short-term companion in that journey, but they mm-hmm. are able to jumpstart their lives and the rest of their lives and then go on and have healthy relationships, get married, get over trauma, 
body issues and all kinds of things because of the little short time that I spent with them. So it is just very beautiful work. I can only imagine how wonderful that must be to really make a difference in people's lives like that. And and how does being a surrogate partner affect your own personal romantic sexual relationships? Well, um, the first thing that I think people don't realize is that um, when you're a surrogate partner, therapist, um, it is a therapeutic process that it's very, you know, scheduled and, and, and it has a methodology. It is a drawn out process. People, you know, think we're going into the relationship um, and we're just going to have sex all, all the time with the clients and that's definitely not what happens. Um, uh-huh. so, so that's the first thing thing that the first myth that we have to dispel I think as surrogate partners in the community um, is the fact that that's not what we do with our time Um, for Mm -hmm. instance I have been working with this individual for two years now and we have never had sex Um, Mm -hmm. and it's all been about rebuilding that trust that he lost Mm -hmm. a long time ago you know, teaching him about bodies and body functions and, and getting him used to touch. I mean, all kinds of skills um, that we teach and model in those relationships that just last a short while with this individual. It's lasted for a while longer because of the very complex issues that he came with uh, within the relationship. Um, however, that's the first thing to understand. But secondly... That, you know, I cannot make an excuse for that. That was my choice. And whoever wants to be my companion in life has to understand that that's what it is. And if somebody's not prepared and if somebody's not self-confident enough, they just can't join me in this journey. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was, oh, since I started this field, even as a clinical sexologist, um, I have always been very clear in the fact that whoever comes across needs to be very self-assured because Mm -hmm. I don't have the intent or the time or the energy to, you know, uh, teach them the ropes and reassure them on something that they feel that, uh, you know, they're lacking confidence or, or attention from me or something like that because of what I do. And I've worked very, very hard to be who I am, and I'm not going to change it for anybody. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I, I haven't found it necessarily, that part I haven't found that is uh, necessarily a challenge. Now, being a sexologist in general, obviously you always get the, uh, because of the word sex in it, people who are mis- just having misjudgments about what we are or mm-hmm. people who, you know, in, 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 the, scene, in the dating scene, uh, people who are like, oh, are you going to be judging me? Are you going to be like, you know, grading my sex skills? <laughs> and, right. uh, and that's definitely not what happens either because you don't want to take your work to the bedroom. <laughs> right. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, And I was curious that you said you've done some postdoctorate studies in neuroscience. And I'm curious how that's added to your understanding of human sexuality. 
Oh, a whole lot. Oh, my goodness. So for me, I think I have three loves in my life. Obviously, the number one is sex, and, and number two is the brain and how the brain works <laughs> and how the brain is really the conductor of everything that we do in life. And number three is politics. Oh, we're not going to talk about that now. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yes, how the brain works, it's helped me a lot to really – understand that mind-body connection and to understand and help people understand that when they are suffering from, you know, whatever is going on with them sexually, sometimes let's say it's erectile dysfunction, but they also have anxiety about it. Um, it it's beyond the psychological because it becomes the wiring of your brain. And sometimes you have to untangle that. And so if you understand the neurochemistry behind it, and how to tweak uh, and modify behaviors, but also change brain patterns in the process, which is what I do. I'm kind of more like a brain puppeteer, if you, if you will, puppeteer in a good way. Mm. Um, yeah. What I'm doing is, is really changing the brain the whole time. Um, and I think it helps people have confidence in what I do. Because when I, under, when I explain it to them in those terms, when I say, well, this is how the brain is reacting to the situations that you are facing and how that is driving the outcome, then they feel validated. You know, it's not in their head. Right. It is in their head, but in a different way. It's not like, you know, it's not like they can talk themselves out of it. It's not as simple. Mm-hmm. They have to really work or we have to work at the brain level to change all the wiring to change that sexual map to change the outcomes in the body and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, yeah, we often joke that the brain is the biggest sex organ. <laughs> it is. It is, absolutely. And so I work with the biggest sex organ, and everybody has one. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting because, you know, as I've matured, I become more and more aware of how my turn-ons really emanate from my brain, especially as a postmenopausal woman, you know, um, it's less from that kind of physiological sex drive and more from being in certain situations that engage my brain. And then my body comes online after that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And, and for women, that's probably a little bit more evident, although it's the same way for men, men in a, in a different way because we're just wired differently. However, you know, with women, we have to be, every, every, like the stars have to be aligned, you know, for us to mm-hmm. really feel sexy and really be in the mood and really be attracted to our partners, um, which, you know, every, every now and then, if something is not going right, we're just not going to be in the right mood for anything that has to do with erotic or the erotic uh, arena. So it's and for men it's, it's a little different because they can kind of get themselves there physically, but for us it's a little harder. So we have to really engage the mind, and our brains have to have the clear path for us to be able to connect sexually and enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had this uh, client session today, and I'd like to just kind of ask you about this with your neuroscience background. Um, so they 
had been swingers, and as often happens with swingers, is they say they're just going to have sex recreationally and not get involved with anybody, but then sooner or later, one of them falls in love with one of their play partners. <laughs> so this mm-hmm. happened where the wife, the wife started to have feelings for one of her play partners, and the husband feels really insecure and, you know, jealous and upset about it. But at the same time, he feels super turned on by it. And he's so confused about how those two things can exist simultaneously. Can you explain that? Well, the first thing to say is that it can exist simultaneously and it is not out of the norm that it will. Just because it disgusts you doesn't mean that you're not going to go for it. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, and, you know, Dr. Helen Fisher, who is a, a, an anthropolo- anthropologist, and she's one of my favorite authors, um, she has done a lot of studies on mating and attraction and uh, why we love, and she has several books out there. Um, and she says it very succinctly and very nicely, and it's that we are wi- we're not wired for monogamy, but we are hardwired for jealousy. And so that is a dichotomy that we're always uh, facing, and we will always face. Um, our mm-hmm. feelings do not just end and stop. Uh, for many, for many people, for for many, it, you know, they do. They do stop with one person, um, and then that's the person that they will love for the rest of their lives. But for many other people, either serial monogamous or people who are in open rela- relationships or people who just stray, um, they find themselves in that quandary. It's like, you know, I, I, I love this person, but I can love somebody else. But they find that when they're in the opposite side of the coin, they, they also feel jealous and insecure. So we mm-hmm. can experience the whole gamut of human emotions regarding um, this topic in particular and our relationships, especially when they're open, but that doesn't mean that it's abnormal. It just means that you're normal. And I think what people have is this um, fantasy, if you will, that when I find the one, then I cannot or will not, will never love anybody else or will never mm-hmm. be attracted to anybody else. I will not stray, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, we know that in real life that happens very seldom. Like people stray. Mm-hmm. People open their relationships, people get divorced and go from one relationship to the next or never get married and go from one relationship to the next. Um, And the reason that happens is because we're not prepared for many reasons to accept that we have all these conflicting, conflicting feelings and we have to reconcile with them and ask the question, how do I want to manage my feelings so I do not feel like I'm, for instance, in this case, losing my wife, but I can partake in the pleasure. And it all boils down to communication. And, uh, mm-hmm. and obviously what those insecurities of yours, like where are they coming from? Because usually those insecurities don't come from that relationship. They're deeply rooted way back when, and they just surface when these situations arise. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with Dr. Tanjanika Kwa- Say your last name, Kwaskud? Kwaskud. Kwaskud. <laughs> also known as Dr. Tanji. And we're talking about all things sex- human sexuality, um, open relationships, non-monogamy, um, neuroscience, um, you name it. Dr. Tanji is kind of like a, the Google of human sexuality. So I invite you to call in and ask her any questions that you might have. And you can call the number 657-383-1132. And you'll be put on hold and we'll go ahead and take your call when we have a pause. So don't worry, you won't be interrupting us. Again, that's 657-383-1132. So, yeah, I was talking to this man who's in his late 50s and about non-monogamy. And he was saying, um, you know, that he just can't imagine living that way. And I said, oh, have you been monogamous your whole life? And he goes, well, not when I was married in my 20s. You know, we were partying all the time. And, yeah, of course, I was fooling around. I said, oh, but then, like, when when you got into your 30s, you've been monogamous since then he goes well no I've cheated a few times <laughs> okay mm-hmm. so you're not monogamous mm-hmm. then so there's this programming that we have in our in our cultures where we think that we're being monogamous but we're really not and then I think there's some extra shame because you have this belief that you are monogamous but you're acting out in a hidden way so I don't know like can you speak to that people aren't owning that they're not, they don't really want to be monogamous, but they just want to fit into the culture or something. Can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. Well, I've heard that a lot too. Um, people who don't want to admit that they're not monogamous. They just want mm-hmm. to, you know, they just want to go on with a program and, and they want to keep the facade. So publicly, they want to portray themselves as, you know, being, um, you know, heads of household and, and family people. And, and, you know, we have this perfect matrimony. And behind closed doors, maybe there's a different story that only they know. I see it in my practice every day. Um, people who have a public persona and then obviously behind closed doors, something else is happening. And I think, as you said, there is this determination to fit into the mold, even if it's by lying, even if Mm -hmm. it's by doing it without getting caught. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And I've known many people who justify it as, well, I'm not hurting anybody as long as nobody else knows. Or, you know, I'm not hurting my wife, I'm not hurting my husband, you know, whoever, if they don't know. And so they just go and do it over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why people would do that. I mean, I can, I can talk about my own personal reasons. I have been in that boat before. And, uh, you know, you don't want to disrupt the family dynamic. You don't want to break the relationship. You don't want to break the family um, mm-hmm. However, you do not have that fulfillment 
in within the relationship. And so some people stray and some people just constantly stray. There's another aspect, mm-hmm. um, another a person who is very, very dear to me, very close to me, um, who has been a serial cheater, if you will, um, has had a lot mm-hmm. of relationships outside of his main relationship. Um, I, I have proposed to him more than once, why don't you just open the relationship? Why don't you just accept the fact that you are not monogamous and instead of playing this game in which you pretend you are and then you have these relationships on the side and then she catches up with you and then there's a big fight and there's a separation and then a reconciliation and that this has happened over the years over and over again. We're kind of all tired of it. Um, why don't you just accept the fact that it, that you want an open relationship? You would probably be more fulfilled and everybody will be happier. And he said to me, well, no, because then she will do it too. <laughs> That's what he said. She will do it too. You know, the minute I open the relationship, I propose, hey, let's do this, then she will have equal rights and equal access to what I am doing. And right now I have exclusive rights to this behavior. So I said, well, isn't isn't that, wouldn't that be fair instead of, and he said, no, because then I would be giving her the message that it's okay for her to do it. Mm -hmm. So I have found that also to be true, not only in this person, but in many people that I have talked to. They don't want to admit it, um, not only in fear of the consequences. This is not a, a necessarily a, a, an easy conversation to have. I recognize that. But also, they don't want to face their own insecurities when they know that the other person is equally empowered to make those kinds of choices. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. I was in a relationship with a man that was married for five years. Uh, We were in a relationship for five years. He'd been married for many more. Um, And they'd been practicing polyamory for decades when I met him. Um, But, you know, he had his his married partner and he had another really long-term partner that he'd known even longer than his wife. And he had me. So I shared him with two other women, and I had trouble finding a long, another relationship that lasted longer than a month because my boyfriends would go off into monogamy land. You know, they'd meet somebody else and leave after a month. So my friends would sometimes say to me, are you being polyamorous these days? And I would say, I'm doing the hard part of polyamory. <laughs> I'm on the end where I'm sharing my partner with two other women, so don't. Like they were describing being polyamorous as me having one, you know, an additional lover and there would be long periods of time where I didn't, but I was still doing the harder part of the, of the dance, you know, by managing my jealousy and my feelings around him having two other partners that he's known longer than me. So, um, yeah, sometimes we forget that, that that's also a part of it as well. It's like, that's where the rubber meets the road. A lot of us want to have other lovers, but when our partner does, I don't know. <laughs> so, so let and me ask it's, you. It's like, difficult. Fr- it's difficult to. It's difficult to dance that dance. I have to say. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to ask you, like, 
with your academic background and your neuroscience background, like how you understand jealousy, because you quoted somebody saying that jealousy is part of being human. So how do you teach your clients to manage those feelings and, and you know, knowing that they are part of being human and knowing that we also are, we, you know, tend toward being non-monogamous, how do we manage that? So I, something that I always explain is that jealousy, when, as we experience it in relationships, um, I'm not talking about possession, for instance, you know, when we're babies, you know, we're given a toy or something, it is very normal and natural for us to kind of hold on to it and, and, and take ownership over it. And mm-hmm. when somebody takes it away, you know, we cry and we, we have a tantrum because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can probably remember that feeling from when you were growing up. When you are given something, you know, when you have a toy, you don't necessarily want to share that toy. They have to teach you to share. Sharing is not a, uh, a natural de facto human behavior. The opposite mm. is true. You know, once I find it, once it's mine, you know, um, I can barely talk, but I say, mine, no. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want mm-hmm. anybody to right. away. It's mine now. And so we become very protective over the things that we deem as ours. So that's one thing. But another thing is um, when we get older, jealousy is an emotion that is a secondary emotion. Uh, when we know better, when we know better, it's a secondary emotion. Um, so jealousy usually speaks about either a void or an insecurity, something that we're missing or lacking. And mm-hmm. so besides being, you know, hardwired into us, usually when it manifests in relationships, it's something, something is, is in us, is deeply rooted. Something has been planted in us before that relationship started or even through that relationship that then kind of surfaces in the way of jealousy. But really what it is, is kind of a cry for help or, or a voice that it's telling us, like, pay attention, there's something wrong here. It's kind of like an alarm sounding off. And so mm-hmm. many times when, I, when we feel jealous, is, you know, we probably need something. Um, so the mm-hmm. jealousy itself is not necessarily the good, you know, the, the good sign to understand it, to really study it, to analyze it, to pause for a minute and say, like, wait, wait a minute, where's this coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, do I feel abandoned? Do I feel like I'm mm-hmm. second place? Do I feel like there's too much competition around me? Do I not feel worthy? Does this make me feel like my self-esteem and my self-confidence are not necessarily at an all-time high? Uh, Is this kind of putting into evidence some things that I still have to work through? Mm -hmm. And so those are the hard questions that can emerge from jealousy and that could lead to growth. And sometimes it's just that it's signaling us that the other person is not prioritizing our needs, and if through or after a lot of work, then we need to decide, okay, is this really a good situation for me? So it's a really good warning sign, but we have to yeah. delve deeper into it. It's not just, you know, fight and, and, and demand and mm-hmm. just follow it. And mm-hmm. It's just a raging hot mess because I feel jealousy. Like, what does it mean? I think that's the most important question. 
and the one that yeah. we're called to answer whenever we feel it. Yeah, and I like how you mentioned, well, I like how you said it points to something that is missing or lacking, and that something that's missing or lacking could be in the relationship where there is some responsibility of the other person, or it could be something in you that has nothing to do with the other person. It could be either of those things. Definitely. So that's, you know, that's what I, I do with, I do it with myself and I invite people to explore what does this mean? What, what is it that this is staring up inside of you? This triggered something. Let's find what has been triggered and why, and then we can deal with the emotional aspect of feeling jealous. Jealousy is not a good feeling. It is a mm-hmm. not a good feeling. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it makes you feel all just uh, out of place. Um, it makes you feel crazy many times, mm-hmm. uh, angry. <laughs> right. You know, there's just it's not a good feeling to have. So I think the more we pause to analyze it, the the more learning we can we can gain from it and then move on and manage it in a in a more productive way right and i also what i gleaned from your description is that it's not our partner's responsibility to keep us from feeling jealous because no matter what they do they could bend over backwards and like never look or talk to another person and that's still not going to guarantee that you'll never feel it it's you got to own it as your own process and your own opportunity for growth. Oh my goodness, that is so true. <laughs> I talked to people <laughs> recently. I was having that conversation um, with somebody, um, and uh, I was saying just that. You know, it doesn't matter what this other person do or does. Um, you will not be guaranteed not to feel how you feel because your feelings. I mean, in this case this person's feelings were not coming necessarily from that situation. That situation had contributed, and, but that situation, what it did, had, it had triggered the alarms on something that had happened in that person's earlier days. Mm-hmm. And so the person was making demands to change the dynamic of this open relationship and um, was demanding more disclosure and, and was saying more honesty. But then what I, what I told this person was, you're needing more disclosure because I think that you're both very honest. However, you're, you're needing more information. The other person is feeling trapped by all the information that you're needing. It's almost like being in the investigation room of an FBI, you know, headquarters. So... <laughs> this other person is feeling suffocated by the need of this person for more disclosure, more information, more transparency. And I could see the yearning and I could see the, the wounded child in this cry for help. And I said, this is not something that the other person can fix. This is something mm-hmm. that you have to work with and through um, because this will not get healed or cured by the other person giving you more information. And the other, and the other person mm-hmm. can withhold information because we're autonomous beings. And so mm-hmm. as much as I would like for everybody to be transparent and, and, and to be, you know, disclosing whatever, we also have the right to our own stories and to share them in whatever which way and at whatever moment we choose to. 
whether the other person thinks that that's right or not. And so mm-hmm. this gets very complicated because it's a very complex dance. Uh, so on one hand, you want to remain autonomous to your own self, but on the other hand, you also want to support the other person through their own needs and processes. And so right. to achieve this kind of balance is extremely hard. However, we, you know, we do that also in, in monogamous relationships. So some people think that, oh, my God, like I could never do that. But as you said, you know, some people are just uh, either coloring outside the lines every once in a while or some people are just serial monoga- monogamous in which they go from one relationship to the next. Managing mm-hmm. other person's emotions, regardless of the context, is a very, very hard task. Yeah, and I've had a couple of clients that were monogamous but still had just a huge problem with jealousy. And because I teach jealousy workshops, and they ended up working with me one-on-one, even though they aren't in open relationships. So, you know, non-monogamous people don't have a monopoly on jealousy. <laughs> um, it Absolutely. comes up regardless of the structure. But I'm really glad you were talking about that balance because I see that all the time in my coaching where I, I'm, couples tend to be very enmeshed and I, I try to teach them to have more sovereignty as they're opening their relationships. So they tend to err on being too enmeshed where they might have like a GPS tracking on each other's phones. So it was really sweet in the beginning of their relationship. Like, oh, I know where he is all the time. But then after a while, it gets to be like a little bit of a stalker kind of thing. So I tell them, like, get rid of that GPS tracking. You guys need to have more independence. And when you feel more sovereign, then you can hold the space for each other's feelings and not have to change your behavior because your partner has a certain feeling. But at the same time, you don't want to be cruel and just be like, I don't care how you feel. I'm still going to do whatever I want to do. So there's, there's a fine line in there that's such a dance, which I think keeps us as relationship therapists really busy because we will always be needed in the world because that, that little balance point is so difficult to find, right? That is so right. Well, I do teach the concept of sensate focus, and I am not sure if you're familiar with it, but um, it is a concept that was de- developed or a therapeutic tool that was developed by Masters and Johnson a long time ago. And basically what it teaches is you're responsible for your own pleasure. I extrapolate Mm -hmm. that to really teach that you're responsible for your own experience and what you create in relationships. So instead of waiting for the other person to give you something, to save you from something, to validate you, to, you know, to give you, I mean, and when we use that language for, for a lot of things, I mean, I hear women all the time say, well, he doesn't give me an orgasm. And I always say, how do you want it in a box with a bow? Like how how does somebody <laughs> give you an orgasm? <laughs> um, and we're always instead of instead of um, developing our own tools of resiliency and and and, and self agency, we're always waiting for somebody else to do the work for us to save us from mm-hmm. our past to mm-hmm. you know heal our wounds to lick them until we heal at least. And mm-hmm. to take them on, to take us under their wings and so forth, instead of doing the hard work of growth ourselves, we put that on the other person. That's a lot of weight on somebody's shoulders, and that can be very suffocating. In relationships in which there is either, you know, kind of a person who is more subservient than another person who's 
more in the dominant role that may work very, very well. Um, I've, I've seen relationships in which there's one person who takes tremendous joy and, um, and, and just thrives in a relationship in which they have to kind of save a fragile being and help them realize themselves and, and their relationship works. However, we're not all equipped to do that, and I do not advocate for that. Um, we have to be responsible for our own experiences. And there's a song by Madonna that I always quote, and the song is a little crude. I don't know if I can say it in the show, but um, yeah, it's <laughs> she says, show. <laughs> okay, so she says, I'm not your bitch, don't hang your shit on me. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what I tell people. You know, don't, don't, that's yours. I don't want it. I don't want to dump mine into you either. So mm-hmm. we have to be responsible and own our own and deal with it and go to a relationship from a place of being willing to grow and to support mm-hmm. each other, not carry each other, not carry the other mm-hmm. person, because this can become very, very dangerous uh, sooner or later. So you are responsible for your own experience. You're responsible for your own pleasure and when that happens, you are empowered to exercise your own self-agency and just to grow it and mature it. And the other person is too. So I think it uh, softens this dilemma a little bit because even through your own emotions, you recognize that the other person is an autonomous being and you are going to respect that no matter what, if that's your tenet. And mm-hmm. so you will ask for probably the support that you need at the time, but not for the other person to come and save you from what you're feeling, but to hold space while you deal with it. That's a different proposition. Yeah, yeah I think so many of us come to a point where we realize that we're going to have to be our own parent and we're never going to find somebody that's going to give us the the love and the parenting that we didn't get. And it's, it's a tragic point when you realize that, that there's nobody that's going to save you. (laughs) It is, it is. And at the same time, um, you know, you can make it a growth experience for yourself and just come out stronger. And again, with better resiliency and uh, and then go to a relationship a little bit more uh, in a more holistic way in which you, mm-hmm. you know, we have our minus and pluses. We're not mm-hmm. all just gods and goddesses going into relationships, uh, forming mm-hmm. alliances, you know, to rule the world. Uh, we are just flawed human beings, and we're going to have right. a lot of flaws going into these relationships. But at least if we have empowerment and we have self-responsibility and we tell the other person, like, I'm aware, like, you know, your awareness is your perfection. That's what I always say. Mm -hmm. There's no perfection. Mm -hmm. Awareness is the only perfection that there is. And if you're aware, at least you can say, you know what, like, I am aware. I'm conscious about what's going on with me and... I will do my best to communicate that and to communicate my needs in a way in which they're going to be honored, not necessarily fulfilled because not one person and not a hundred people can fulfill our needs completely a hundred percent of the time. 
However, I think the better we're able to know ourselves enough to be able to have the right language to communicate it and to convey it clearly to the other person, at least we can do that. At least we can be clear with our intent. At least we can be direct. At least we can minimize any vague notions of what we're about. I see that in relationships as well. Um, I, I mean, I'm still growing and learning as well. Uh, we're not necessarily always well-versed and skilled in really conveying what is it that we need. And mm-hmm. so the first thing that I do with people in my practice is I, I we sit down and we have a very honest and candid thinking process about what is it that you need. And we divide it. What is it that you need? What is it that you want? What is it what, that you desire? Those are different realms. And um, you have no idea how many people, especially men, tell me, first of nobody has ever asked me, like, what is it that I need? And secondly, mm-hmm. I don't know what I need. And I said, well, if you don't know what you need, then you cannot communicate that, and you will always feel the void because nobody is giving you what you need, obviously because they don't know what that is either. So if you don't know, mm-hmm. they don't know either. Yeah, so that's, very that's important. true. It reminds Reminds me of a relationship I was in years ago where um, this guy was a lover and I was telling him about someone I was dating and he said, why aren't you dating me? And I said, well, because you're kind of a playboy. I don't really think of you as relationship material. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't think you can give me what you want, what I want. And he goes, well, what do you want? And I go, well, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, well, here, right. t- take this piece of paper and write it down for me. So <laughs> He made me pull up a chair at the desk and write down exactly what I wanted. And it was quite an amazing exercise. So, yeah, I think that's what we all need to do is to really think about. And I think that's what's good about the dating apps is it forces you to get some clarity around what what it is you really want. What is it that you want? What is it that you need? What is it that you desire? And Mm -hmm. I think the more you know about yourself, then the better streamlined the process of mating will be um, because at least, Mm -hmm. you know, you have information, you have clarity, and you avoid a lot of mishaps and missteps in the process if you have that kind of insight. Exactly. Well, we're almost out of time, but I just want to say that I'm struck by, just like you were saying, people have a misconception of being a surrogate partner that you're just having sex all the time. Similarly, you know, have, being a sexologist in general is a lot about communication and creating safety and, you know, doing our own work on our personal growth. Um, and people must think that as a sexologist that all you do is, you know, teach people how to have great, you know, how to have sex, but they don't realize that how to have great sex involves how to communicate. And it's all this other kind of stuff that, that makes for the great sex, wouldn't you say? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, First of all, you need to think (laughs) a lot, design and create the experience that you want to materialize and realize Mm -hmm. outside of you. So there's a lot of internal Mm -hmm. work that is required in order for you to do that. That's hard work. For many, many folks, that's, that's a very, very hard process. Communication is definitely the biggest 
flaw of them all in all kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you are talking about open relationships, obviously that communication has to be spot on um, and that, you know, perfected to the best of your abilities because you will have to be communicating and conveying messages to different people with different styles. So that can be very taxing if you are not in a higher wavelength to really hone on those skills that are going to allow you to get your message across effectively. And, and, and again, everybody gets what they need, what they want, or at least maximize that experience. So communication is mostly what I do, a lot of education about uh, all the topics that we talked about today, neuroscience, how we think, how we feel, um, a lot of connecting body and mind processes. Um, sometimes the mind is going one way and the body's going another way, and we have to bridge that gap. So that's mostly exactly. really what I do, and uh, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. Well, thank you. Everybody has a different story. All right. Well, so we only have two minutes left, and I want to give you time to tell our listeners um, how they can reach you and if there's anything else you want to share. Well, first off, thank you so much for this opportunity. This is a lot of fun. You know, as you can tell, I get very excited because I love talking about sex in general <laughs> and to have shared this, uh, this space with you and your show has been quite an honor and just a lot of fun. Um, so people can just go to my website. I have to texassexualhealth.com. I think that's the easiest one to remember. That's going to take everybody to everything that I do. And then I have Dr. Texassexualhealth.com. Texassexualhealth.com. Oh, texassexualhealth.com. Okay. And then I have Dr. Tanji, the sex doctor.com. Probably if you just Google the sex doctor, I'm going to come up in some way, shape, or form. Okay, got it. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Tanji. I, it was really fun to chat with you about all this stuff, and you really are a wealth of knowledge, and I'm really um, honored that you joined me, and keep up the good work. I'm sure there's a lot of people that you're helping out there in Texas, and now that everything's virtual, you can help people from anywhere, I'm imagining, yeah? Yes, absolutely, and likewise. Thank you so much. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great world, great work in the world, and we need you. Mm, thank you so much. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Uh-huh. Good night. So thank you for listening this week, and next week I just want to let you know that we have another fabulous guest. Her name is Eleanor O'Brien. She's the artistic director of Dance Naked Productions. So she brings uh, sex positivity into the performance art world. She's based in Portland, Oregon. And she is just so much fun. You're going to love her. So join us next Tuesday, February 2nd at 6 p.m. Pacific time for Leading Edge Love Radio. And this has been your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. Good night.